I took my family out west, and after uh, staying in Washington State, we decided to take a slow drive back here to Ohio. We'd taken the north route through the North Dakota and Minnesota on the way out, and so we decided to come back down on 80, I think it is. And um, along the way, we, we made some various stops, and one of the places we stayed was Boise. And outside Boise is a penitentiary that was started in 1870, maybe 73, 72, and was operated as a state penitentiary until uh, about 1972, almost 100 years later. And as we walked around that penitentiary, it was fascinating. If you're ever out there, I'd encourage you to go visit it. There's stories on the wall on sort of colored poster boards throughout the halls and in some of the jail cells about criminals that had stayed there over the course of the time that that, that place was con- functional and in operation. And there were a lot of tragic stories about hardened criminals that we read about, but there was one that stood out. And the one that stood out was about a man named Harry Orchard who was set to hang for a series of brutal murders that he had committed around the turn of the 20th century. Now, Harry Orchard was born in, in 1867 up in Ontario, Canada, the son of a farmer. But he, at about age 30, had made his way out to Idaho and had started working for the Western Federation of Miners as a miner in a, in a silver mine out there. And because of uh, anger and greed that was in Harry Orchard's heart, in December of 1905, he ended up murdering the governor of Idaho, Frank Stunenberg. And he did this by strapping a large explosive, 10 pounds of dynamite, to the side entrance of the governor's house. And when the governor came home one evening, he was, he was blown to bits. Now, there were many such stories posted on the wall of that prison because that prison was actually located near a mine, and so you had a lot of these sorts of people. But Orchard's story was different. In the aftermath of being caught and through the very highly publicized long trial, uh, there was a change in Orchard. He had been sent a Bible at some point by a mission society in Chicago throughout the course of that trial, and the Holy Spirit started to work in his life. And over the course of those weeks, as he was being tried, he came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior. And when he took the stand... He not only confessed to uh, killing Governor Stunenberg, but he also voluntarily confessed, without ever having been caught, that he had actually killed about 20 people before that. And he had always, almost always used dynamite in, in, his, in his killings. Now, he openly confessed killings. Along with it, he confessed uh, bigamy, drinking, gambling, womanizing, and that trial took a very sharp, drastic turn, and he was grilled in court. And the way that he openly confessed his sins and repented of them before the court and acknowledged them and owned them was shocking to even the most veteran of reporters. He writes in his autobiography, I, I read about him on the wall of that prison, and I came home and I said, what more can I learn about this guy? And so I ended up buying a very rare book. It's not published very well, but it is published, and it's the Confessions and Autobiography of Harry Orchard. Um, He ends up writing in this book that Julian Stunenberg, 
the son of the governor that he killed, um, came one day and, and asked the warden at the prison where he was if he might see Harry Orchard. And I'm quoting from, from this book. The warden came in and told me of a request and also said that this young Stunenberg, the man's son, had a package in his pocket that looked like a gun. He suggested that perhaps I better not see him. After a moment's thought, I told the warden that I felt that I should and that if he wanted to kill me, I guess from a human standpoint, he had the right to do so. He, Julian, the son, came to me and put out his hand, which I took reluctantly as I felt that I was too much of a moral leper to shake hands with him. His gun proved to be a roll of papers and tracts which his mother, Belle, had sent to me with the request that I read them and remember to turn to Jesus for forgiveness and salvation. Belle began sending letters and books to Harry in prison, and in 1909, she asked if she could come visit him five years, four years after he had he'd killed her husband. He wrote back and said, I am so unworthy and overcome with grief when thinking about meeting you face to face. But in time, he did meet her. And because of his open confessions and because of his radical repentance that everyone seemed to, to acknowledge, they couldn't deny, his sentence was actually reduced at the very last minute from being hung to a life in prison, and he did live a life in prison. He lived in that prison, the Idaho State Penitentiary, for 46 years, the longest sentence served in the state's history. And during those 46 years, he became a powerful evangelist to the inmates, a friend to the warden, the guards, and the inmates alike, and at his death, he was mourned by all those that knew him, and he left the legacy of faith behind the bars that he was behind. And I just take a couple of minutes to share with you this story because I want to speak to you this morning about sin and about repentance. In our passage, we read about a man like Harry Orchard, a man who is not just a theoretical sinner, but an actual sinner, a real sinner, a dirty sinner. He's the most brutal and pagan of all the kings of Judah, and the man we're going to read about this morning is Manasseh. So I'd ask if you have your Bibles, open them to chapter 33 of Second Chronicles and stand with me as we read our passage this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations which the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down, and he also erected altars for Baal and made Asherim, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name shall be in Jerusalem forever. For he built altars for all of the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, and he practiced witchcraft, used divination, practiced sorcery, and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Then he put the carved image of the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed to your fathers, if they will only observe and do all that I have commanded according to the law, the statutes, and the ordinances given to Moses. Thus Manasseh 
misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than all the nations that the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. And I'll just put a brief pause here and say, if you were to read the account of Manasseh that is in Kings, which I think is probably more prominent, this is where the story would end. For various reasons, there are some reasons for it, but in, in Kings, this account ends right here on this very sour, bitter, tragic, dark note. But in Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 33, we go on to read what comes after this point. Then the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with bronze chains and took him to Babylon. When he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. When he prayed to him, he was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Now after this, he built the outer wall of the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley, even to the entrance of the fish gate. And he encircled Ophel with, Ophel with it and made it very high. Then he put army commanders in all the fortified cities of Judah. He also removed the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord, as well as all the altars that he had built in the mountains of the, uh, built on the mountains of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he threw them outside of the city. He set up the altar of the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it, and he ordered Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed on the high places, although only to the Lord their God. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, even his prayer to his God, and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord the God of Israel, behold, they are among the records of the kings of Israel. His prayer also and how God was entreated by him and all his sin, his unfaithfulness, and the sites on which he built the high places and erected the ashram and the carved images before he humbled himself. Behold, they are written in the records of the Hosei. So Manasseh slept with his fathers, and they buried him in his own house. And Ammon, his son, became king in his place. Would you, would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that uh, we who are so prone to self-exaltation and to pride, would be humbled as we consider Manasseh, his sin and his repentance. And I pray that we would be changed. I ask that if there are those here who have not come to repent of their sins and to love you, that you would work in their hearts just as you've worked in my heart and in Manasseh's heart. And Father, would your words be my words and may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We didn't say the word of the Lord, so let's do that now. This was the word of the Lord. Thanks. Amen. Please be seated. Have you ever noticed that um, there are many who don't believe in God or in the Bible, but who have no problem or internal conflict saying that certain men, certain people, Hitler or Stalin, for instance, are in hell. Have you never noticed that? Or they have no problem saying that rapists and vile criminals deserve to go to hell. And they seem to have, have no problem with it. I've heard many comments made like this over the, the course of my life. And while I agree that justice does 
demand and require that, in fact, they do go to hell. It's a curious thing to me that the people that say these things have such a clear sense of divine justice as it relates to the sin of other people, especially those whose sin is very bold and out there. And yet they have little to no sense of the same divine justice as it is applied to them. It's not just, though, with people that say things like that. The same thing is true with us. And I hope that this morning the Lord will reveal the way that we can live in this way. None of us want to admit that we are sinners in the way that this man was a sinner. None of us want to admit that our hearts would go just as far as Manasseh went or as a man like Cary Orchard went if it were not for the mercy of God that restrains the wickedness that is in our hearts, surely we'll all admit that we're sinners. I know that. I've never, as my dad said in Sunday school or a little earlier, he's never met, and I've, I, I've never met anyone who actually denied that they ever sinned. But though we admit that we're sinners, we all want to believe that we are theoretical sinners. And by that, what I mean is we all know in theory that we sin. We know in our minds that we do things that are wrong. We don't deny that the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Most of us have, if we grew up in the church, we've memorized that verse at some point and we can rattle it off. But though we can say those words, it doesn't match up necessarily with how we actually view ourselves. We don't see ourselves as actual sinners. We don't see our sin in a way that really is a stench in God's nostrils in the way that we could read about Manasseh and see, oh man, witchcraft, that's bad. Sacrificing your sons, oh. We don't view our sins in nearly those sort of categories. We don't see the effect of our sin being as destructive as what it really is. We think that it's a small thing, a, a sort of a glancing thing on the, on the surface of our life. We don't want to think about ourselves the way Manasseh was blessed to be able to think about himself and see that clarity about what he had done and what he needed in Jesus. This morning, I want to consider Manasseh's sin and consider his repentance. That's what we're going to do together. Manasseh's sin... Manasseh's repentance. We can break the sermon into those two sections. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem, the longest reigning king. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations, which the Lord had dispossessed before Israel, as Israel was coming in. Now, I already said that Manasseh stooped farther in the sin and wickedness than any other king of Israel. And though we will look for, uh, in a minute at what he actually did, we need to first recognize that his wickedness was elevated and all the more heinous and disgusting because as he was sinning and doing all those things which we read about in chapter 33, he was actually sinning against knowledge and instruction. And I, I want to make a, a very clear point to all of you who are growing up in the church being taught, listen, as Manasseh was doing all these things, he was sinning against what he knew to be right and knew to be wrong. Manasseh's father was a man named Hezekiah. And Hezekiah had his faults. 
Hezekiah was one of those kings of the southern kingdom that sort of had his, his you know, greatest hit years and his bad years, you know, and, and he really got a lot better at the end of his life. He was a proud man, and so at a certain point in his life, God afflicts him, and, and he becomes ill, and he repents, he humbles himself, and he begs God for an extension of his life. He says, I, give me more years. And God is, like with Manasseh, moved by Hezekiah's humbling of himself. And he says, I've heard your request and I'll give you 15 more years of life. Now, I'm not very good at math, but what I know is that if Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, that must have mean that Hezekiah died when he was 12, which also means that Hezekiah must have been born three years after Hezekiah, Manasseh was born rather, three years after Hezekiah repented. Okay, so if you're tracking with me, what does that tell you? Well, what that tells you is that Manasseh, as he was growing up, was not growing up in the years where his father was doing his own thing and not really having much regard for the Lord. Manasseh was growing up as as a very late born son of King Hezekiah And as he was growing up, he was growing up during the years where Hezekiah was really following the Lord. And so we we have to imagine that there's no way Hezekiah would fail to instruct his son in the things of God, right? These are the good years of Hezekiah. There's no way that Hezekiah didn't grow up seeing the humility that his father had found in later years. There's no way that Manasseh grew up for those first 12 years not knowing what was right and wrong. His, his father had, had modeled that, and Israel was at a good point in their history when Manasseh came onto the scene. Manasseh had been taught, and yet Manasseh pulled down what his father had built. Manasseh built up the idol temples that his father had torn down. So he wasn't just sinning as the pagans around him. He knew better. And he had been taught something very different, and yet he still chose to sin. Now listen, I remember when I was young, I grew up in a church where there weren't too many children. Uh, But there, throughout the years, were a few. And uh, there were a couple of boys that I wanted to be friends with. I can remember wanting to be friends with and sort of having a relationship with them at the time. But they were fairly ornery kids, and they weren't necessarily always kind to me. And I remember there was a time... There was a situation involving these these boys that caused my dad to be very upset with me over something I had said or done. I don't remember what it was, but... um, And I remember that my dad had scolded me, and I thought it was a supreme injustice. I remember telling him that what I had done was not nearly as bad as what these boys had done to me. I thought that they were the bad ones. And I was in my mind, presuming that when I explained to him the situation, his anger would be, you know, toned down. I wouldn't receive the, 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 the butt of his anger that I was getting at the moment. And so as I was rationalizing and trying to explain the real injustice of the situation, I was surprised because it seemed like I had just thrown a whole bunch of dry kindling on the fire. His anger got much, much worse, which is the reason I probably remember this to share with you today. He was very angry, and he told me that I thought they were the bad ones, but in reality, I was much worse than them. And I think in my pride, that moment has stuck in my mind. And he said, you are much worse than them, and what you did was much worse because you know better. 
And he pointed out to me that those boys grew up in a home where they hadn't had any training and they hadn't had the example that I had. In fact, they were doing what had been modeled for them by their father. And yet I was doing what I had been taught not to do. And therefore, I thought I was better. I thought that I was doing something much less sinful. And yet I was mistaken. I was the much greater sinner in that situation. Manasseh's wickedness was elevated because he sinned against what he knew to be right. He tore down the faithful work of his father and rebuilt what his father had destroyed. Now, there are those of you, and I want to speak to especially the young and the young adults here. We all like to think of ourselves as theoretical sinners. Yeah, we make mistakes, but we don't make mistakes like those around us. You may look down at those who, who have no knowledge of, for instance, how to spend money, who waste their money, who, who gamble, who aren't responsible, and you look down on them, but your security is in your bank account. You look on it with quiet satisfaction, or maybe you don't even have significant money at all, but you, you daydream about having it when you have been taught that you cannot serve God and money. Or, or we look around and we see other people and what they're doing and we take things way too far with our girlfriend or with our boyfriend. And yet we feel good about ourselves because we didn't go all the way like them. And we're actually planning on getting married. Nobody else in my class is planning on getting married. Nobody else on campus. Nobody, don't you know, people in college don't even get married anymore. We find ways of reducing our sins to a point where they're really, yeah, yeah, they're, you know, we probably shouldn't do it, but it's theoretical. It's not really that big a deal by comparison. But no, you've been taught the words of God. You've been taught what God has said, and so he holds you to a much higher standard. Don't ever let yourself off the hook. Don't ever let your pride blind you to the reality of your sin. You're not profane like those that you work with, but you think nothing of being crass, or you think nothing of the type of language you take in in your music, your entertainment. This is how we treat theoretical sin. We reduce it by comparison to the point where it's really not that bad. You remember that Jesus told the Jews, what did he say? He said, you have heard that it was said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you that even if you look on a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart, haven't you? He says the same for murder. You've heard it said you shall not murder. But I say that if you hate your brother in your heart, you are a murderer and you shall be guilty. Now listen, very few of the Jews that Jesus was talking to were likely real physical murderers and adulterers. They looked down on those sorts of people. That was the kind of stuff that maybe the Romans did, but not them. They were were theoretical sinners. They made mistakes, but not like the pagans. They didn't do the stuff that the other people did. They did bad things occasionally, but they had their protocol. They had their ceremonies. They had their ways of dealing with it in a way to sort of settle their hearts and minds and make them feel at peace with God. They've they've checked the box, and though, yeah, they probably shouldn't have done it, eh, not a biggie. Not a biggie in contrast with everything else going on. Manasseh's sin was great because it was a sin against what he had been taught. And so 
young people, as you are taught, you recognize that that is an immense blessing, but it's also a responsibility. If you choose to sin against that teaching, it's all the more heinous and sad and all the more an offense against God. So I urge you to not reject the word of God, but to embrace it, and, and may it be a source of life and water to your life. Trust it. Live by it, and you'll be happy. But if you rebel, there's there's much, much misery that you will often have to go. If God is faithful, it will be miserable for you. Manasseh's sin was all the greater because he had sinned against what he had been taught. It was against the example of his father. So the sins of your heart are just as great because you have been taught the word of God. Now, Manasseh's sin was also great in the sense that it was bold. It was great in the sense that it was against what he had been taught. It was also great in the sense that it was just, man, it was, it was gutsy. Now, there are those who, because of their pride, I say there are those, but it's really you and I. Because of our pride, because of our, our shame, we seek to hide our sins. To sin in ways that leave us getting what we want, but without setting up, you know, ourselves for public scandal. You know what I mean? You know what I mean. We don't like to do the bad things in front of our parents because then we know what's coming. We like to do the bad things when they're not watching, right? We like getting what we want, but we don't want to be seen as trying to get what we want. Not so with a Manasseh. He had no shame. You read this chapter, no shame at all. Whereas others might have set up idols in their personal chamber or where they would have gone off to the mountains somewhere and set up an idol. He sets up, where does he set up his idols? In the very temple of God. And if... One court wasn't good enough. He made sure to set them up in both courts. Every stage, the most public, the most central place to Israelite worship, he sets up idols. Paul disguises himself. I'm sorry. Saul, King Saul, in the Old Testament, disguises himself and travels to a witch of Endor. But Manasseh openly practices witchcraft and sorcery. Many of us are like, Many of us are like Saul. We'll hide it and do it. Not so. Man, Manasseh's bold. He just declares himself. What, I don't know. Was a wizard the male form of a witch? I don't know. I was thinking about that earlier. But he practices witchcraft and sorcery. Whereas many are content to honor God with their lips, yet their hearts are far from him, Manasseh sets out on a mission to desecrate all the things that were most sacred to the nation of Israel. All of the things that God had been very, most specific about. The very things where, that he says, here is where I will give you my presence and I will abide if you're faithful. Man, he just blows right through it. He does not care. Whereas there were many Israelites who failed to love and instruct their children. We can think back in, at the time of Joshua. We can even think about Moses failing to circumcise his child. And all the points at which Israel dropped the ball with instructing their children in the way they should have, of setting a faithful example in the way they should have. You could accuse many Israelites in the Old Testament of not loving their children faithfully. But whereas they did that, Manasseh practiced and made a virtue of the most abhorrent abominations. He sacrificed, he laid his sons in fire, a fire sacrifice to pagan gods. He was a desperado of sin, and he went to the furthest reaches of it. He was very bold. If he cursed God, it was with a loud voice. It was not in the corner, but from his throne. In the most daring manner, he insulted the Lord, the God of Israel. There's nothing theoretical 
about Manasseh's sin. It was absolute, it was concrete, it was visible, it was bold, it was actual. Now, there's no way of prettying up the things that he did. There's no way of shading it. There's no way of whittling it down to make his sins anything less than abhorrent as we read through this chapter. But there's something good about that because actually, here's the thing. God does not save theoretical sinners. You recognize that. God does not save theoretical sinners. Men and women, teenagers who have a sense that they're sinful, but yeah, you know, I know I do it, but it's, it's not really that bad. Those sorts of people, those justifiers, those that make comparisons with others and reduce their sin down to the point where it's manageable and nice and can be tucked away, there's no hope for those people. God doesn't save theoretical sinners. He saves actual sinners. And this is great news because the reality is, is that we are actually all real, actual sinners. But if we don't see, here's the, here's the thing. If you don't see yourself as an actual sinner, if you don't see yourself in the way that Manasseh came to see himself or Harry Orchard came to see himself, you will never see a need for Jesus' blood on your behalf. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of this, it's for Christians who recognize that they need the blood of Christ to cover them. For as hard a thought that is in some ways, we recognize that that is our most central need. But if you don't see yourself as an actual sinner, you're not going to see a need for Jesus' blood, and you're most certainly not going to see your need for actual repentance. It's this realization that causes Paul in the New Testament to say that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost of all. He was not being self-righteous or, you know, trying to act pious and saying that. Paul knew that he was the foremost sinner against God. Not Manasseh, not Ahab, not Ananias and Sapphira. He was the foremost of all. But have you ever had that thought about yourself? Manasseh was an actual sinner who found actual salvation through actual repentance. So just as there is nothing theoretical about his sin, as we've talked about already, there was nothing theoretical about his repentance after the point of being humbled by God. Verse 10 says that the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to the people, but they paid no attention to him. And then it says, therefore the Lord brought the commanders of the armies of the king of Assyria against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks. That doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? They captured him with hooks, and they bound him with bronze chains and took him to Babylon. And then he was in distress. What we need to see here, hooks are not pretty. You know, I'm not a fisherman, but I have stabbed myself with those little hooks before. How many of you have done that? That is some painful stuff right there. Now, I don't think it was a fish hook that they put through them. I, from the little bit of reading I heard, I heard that they put hooks right through the nose and they'd pull them by these hooks. You think about the humiliation of, they, they, they would chain their hands, wrists, and ankles, so they'd be shackled, but then they would put hooks through the nose and pull them along by their nose as a humiliation tactic. It's very unpleasant. But this very un unpleasant circumstance happens to be the mercy and the grace of God in Manasseh's life. 
This is why I said earlier that, it, that if you reject God, if you are taught the Bible and then decide that you're going to stiff arm it and walk away, if God is merciful to you, you will be miserable. Because the most miserable person of all is actually the person who, who, who rejects the Lord, is happy in a life of selfish sin and self-righteousness and whatever pleasure you want, and then dies and goes to hell and is in misery for eternity. That's the most miserable. So if God is kind to you, you'll be miserable in this life to bring you to repentance. And so we see here that God is kind to Manasseh. By the grace and the mercy of God, he allows Manasseh to be in distress. Verse 12, when Manasseh was distressed... No one wants to be in distress. No one wants hardship. No one likes living under terror or pain or suffering. But these things happen to be the chisels of God on the granite of our hearts when we're hard-hearted. Manasseh was in distress. This is a change. Contrast in the chapter. Contrast with everything that came before when he was living for himself without any care or concern how often God uses hardship and distress to call those who have never looked to him to look upward to him, took the chain of an Assyrian through his nose. God often uses imprisonments and the threat of death, suffering to cause us to look beyond what we can do for ourselves. He uses affliction to show us that we cannot achieve our own salvation. We can't be our own saviors. And we must look to something beyond ourselves. We must look to Jesus Christ. This Reality started to form in Manasseh's mind as he was being led with hooks to Assyria. And in the second half of verse 12, we, say, we see he was distressed. And then if you look down, it says, He entreated the Lord his God, entreated, and humbled himself greatly. Entreated the Lord his God, and he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed, God was moved and so we don't need any more proof of his sincerity, do we? God, who tests the heart, will not be moved by anything that is not sincere. God will not be moved by anything that lacks truthfulness. And so we see here that he was greatly humbled in truth with sincerity before God. And God heard his supplication and brought him again. We, don't, we aren't told how. We aren't told how long it was, how, long, how we escaped from Assyria. But it says that God restored him. That's the main point we need to take away. We don't need to know the details. God restored him to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. He didn't go back as a beggar. He didn't go back as a dethroned king. He actually got to go home, and he also resumed the throne. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. That's the declaration we read in Chronicles that Kings doesn't give us. Manasseh repented, and it wasn't theoretical. It was actual. What would a theoretical repentance look like? It would have looked like being in distress and calling out to God and maybe even being humbled, but for a moment, not for the rest of life. It would have looked like God bringing back Manasseh to Jerusalem and slowly or maybe immediately Manasseh turning back to the lifestyle he had sworn off. It would look like moral, spiritual relapse. It would have been words and tears without actual change. But there was lasting change, and we see that. If we keep just glancing at the verses that are at the end, with 14, we see that he built the outer wall. Okay, what in the world? Why are, why are we told this? 
Like he, he built the wall. What, what act of repentance is building the wall? What act of repentance is in the infrastructure of a city? Why is that, why is that important? Well, Listen, if we consider formerly that Manasseh had given himself to tearing down every barrier between him and pagan culture around him, we recognize why building a wall would be significant, wouldn't it? Don't we? We recognize that he's starting to say, okay, there is a divide between the people of God and the people of the pagan nations around us. He starts to set up a guard with his eyes that he won't look at the things that everyone else looks at. He starts setting up a guide to his senses, his ears, what he will listen to and what he won't listen to. Because there's a difference. There's a difference between the way that people live into the kingdom of God versus outside. And so even in building a wall, which is a very physical thing, again, true repentance is very physical. It's not theoretical. You with me? He builds a wall to signify the, the significance of being separate, of keeping the God's and, the, and the, the, the practices of the pagan nations outside of his kingdom. This is his repentance, and this is what he's seeking to start to try to do for the people in his kingdom that he had led astray as well. We can go on. He also removed the foreign gods and the idols from the house of the Lord, as well as all the altars that he had built in the mountains, the house of the Lord, and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside of the city. Now, you know, especially in the time when Israel was nomadic and was traveling around in the wilderness. But continuing on to when they had built cities, the outside, outside the city, that's where all the unclean stuff was, right? That's where like the fecal matter and like the, 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 the people who were unclean had to go. And so he's throwing these idols and he's not just, you know, repurposing them, you know? He's not trying to be uh, pragmatic about the matter. Right? You can imagine that the idols and the, all these things weren't things of insignificant value. If you're building shrines to gods, they probably had value. He didn't bother trying to melt those suckers down and repurpose them into something that would give him monetary value. He just threw them outside the wall. He's done with them. He's not going to have any part of them. And there's this, there's this overarching message that this is, this is unclean stuff. This is, this is the stuff we don't go to. We keep on going. We see what his actual repentance looks like. He sets up an altar to the Lord as God and offers peace offerings and thank offerings on it. And he ordered Judah to serve it. And so we see that, it, again, he's not just getting rid of some of the bad things of his heart and his kingdom. He's filling it with the good, pure things. We talked about that a few weeks ago. You can never actually have true repentance by just getting rid of some of the bad things of your life. You recognize that. I have met, sadly met people who treat Jesus Christ coming into contact like, with him like, like he's just the, the, the amaranth cherry on top of their milkshake. He enriches their lives. That's not what, no. It's not just about getting rid of some of the bad stuff to make your life more pleasant, right? It's filling yourself and filling your life with the pursuit of the holiness of God. It's loving Jesus Christ and giving yourself to him. And so we see that. We see it's not just a cleansing of the bad, but it's a filling with the good doing what God has commanded. And then finally for this morning, verse 18, it says, the rest of the acts of Manasseh, even his prayer to his God, and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel, behold, they are among the records of the kings of Israel. Why is that significant? Why are we told that? We don't have those records anymore. But why is it recorded that all his acts and his prayer is recorded 
for all the, all the kingdom. Well, it's significant because he doesn't try to hide his sin. You recognize that. He sets up his prayer of repentance as a memorial of sorts, just like David did in Psalm 51. He's not trying to hide his sin. He's not trying to shove it in the corner. He's not trying to, like, say, oh, you know, that was my midlife crisis. Forget about that. We'll just forget about that. Theoretical repentance always seeks to downplay our sin. Real repentance doesn't forever live under the, the weight and the guilt of sin, but it acknowledges it for exactly what it is. There's never a downplaying of sin when it's true, actual repentance. There's always the acknowledgement of exactly what it is with all of the shame and embarrassment that may come from that. And then there's the actual forgiveness from Christ and the freedom and the repentance to move on and not live under it and not be slaves to our sin or slaves to the shame of sin. But don't ever, don't, if, you, if you go through life seeking to mitigate, reduce down your sins, you are a, the, a theoretical sinner. You aren't an actual sinner. Manasseh doesn't try to do that. So as it relates to others, be reminded that there is, what did we learn from this passage? About, we've been talking about sin and repentance and its connection to salvation. Okay, as it relates to others, be reminded that there is never a man or a woman who is so great a sinner that they cannot be saved. That's a very encouraging thing that we learn from the life of Manasseh. Here is this horrible man who trampled on his father's prayers, who spat in the face of God, who laid his children on a burning altar to a foreign God, and yet his sins were not so bad that they changed God's goodness. His hatred for God was not stronger than God's love for him. And we see that as God sends that king of Assyria to come and humble him. And so I would say, as it relates to others, therefore, you and I are not to lose hope about any one of our friends or relatives or coworkers, any of your fellow man. We have no right to lose hope for them. Do not ever say that he's a hopeless case. Because after all, what I hope we see as we think about this chapter is that God saved Manasseh and he saved you. So who are you to think that there's no hope for someone else? Now as it relates to you, don't ever be content with the delusion that there is such a thing as theoretical sin. There is not. All sin is gross sin against God. If you're content in viewing yourself as a theoretical sinner, you'll be content with theoretical repentance. Absolutely, they go hand in hand. But theoretical repentance is not really repentance at all. If, on the other hand, you are greatly distressed and you humble yourself and you seek the Lord, be encouraged because the, the message of this passage to us and the story of Manasseh is that God will look on favor with you as he did with Manasseh. And he will restore to you what your sins have whittled away and eaten at. And he will show you his kindness. And then you'll be able to sing the words that we sing all the time. And I hope that we take them for what they really mean. You know, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Is that the way you view yourself? God did not come to save 
and give grace to the theoretical sinner. He came to save those who were sinful to the uttermost. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would not see ourselves in our lives, our good things and our sins with rose-covered glasses that, that makes everything appear to us as something that it is not. Father, give us eyes to see that we are, as Paul said, the, the chief of sinners, so that we value you and your blood in the way that we ought to, and so that we might love you as we ought to. And I pray that uh, you would be faithful to each person here to call them to this sort of knowledge of you. Specifically, I pray for those that are growing up here with a knowledge of what is true, that they would not turn away from it, and that you would spare them from having to be like Manasseh and go through the hardship and suffering to bring them to the knowledge of the truth. We pray for those here that have grown up and walked away from you, Father. We know that there are those here that once sat with us and now are no longer here, and I pray that you would restore them to fellowship here and, more importantly, with you, Father. I pray that they would know you as Manasseh did. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand with me?